Hi, welcome to the Scuttlebutt Podcast. I'm Rich, and today I have as a, as a guest a, a very good trapper, a friend here, Jim Gibb, and we are sitting in Toronto. And we call it the Big Smoke. Why do they call it the Big Smoke? Because it's just a big smog place. <laughs> too many people crammed into too many places and just too many vehicles. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a lot of people here, man. I've been been walking around downtown today, and I just can't believe the number of people. Yeah, it's, we, it's unbelievable. And you know, it's funny for... for uh, a place that uh, all the polls say believes in the carbon tax. There's a lot of vehicles here. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> you always plan an extra half an hour no matter what you do here because you're going to be in traffic no matter what. So tell me, you have been a trapper for uh, most of your life. How, how did it start for you? Well, I started off, I was best friends with a French family. It was the son next door to me and their family did the hunting, fishing and trapping. And I just kept following along and... 40 years later, here I am. I'm still trapping. Okay. So in the beginning, they, they had a, a registered trap line then? Yeah, or? that's our system in Ontario, especially the northern part of Ontario. There's about 28 registered uh, trap lines in Ontario. And uh, I'm from the Timmins area, so the Timmins district, and that's where I started trapping. So they had a registered line, and I used to tag along. And it was funny because after a while, the son didn't really care to go, but I always went out with the dad. And Saturday morning, he'd pick me up at the end of my driveway, and if I slept in, I was not a very happy camper the whole week because I missed going trapping, so that's how it all started for me. <laughs> so uh, what, what, what uh, did they trap for back then? Mostly beaver and marten. That were the two big ones, a little bit of lynx, wolves, pretty well everything, but primarily beaver and marten. No kidding. Yeah, and I remember the beaver, the, the marten used to average about $15. That was about the average. That was, that was considered a good average. Yeah, yeah. No, I, that... that and beaver today are, are probably averaging that. <laughs> or less. Yeah. The caster, caster and big beaver is bigger than, worse more than the little beavers right now. Absolutely. I did so good on the last auction on, on my caster. I, I'm embarrassed how much I've used for bait. You yeah. know, I, I, I make my own lure with it. And it's like, my goodness. What, what was the top price on number one? I think it was 105 Yeah. Canadian. I, yeah. yeah. 105 Canadian. So that's pretty good money for caster when you think about it. Yeah. And then it, the primary takers of that are the perfume trade. So that really gives it a boost. So. It's, yeah, it's a, uh, it's kind of nice when you see uh, ladies dabbing the stuff on and they don't realize it's beaver caster. Yeah, <laughs> and especially if you're at a point to where it comes from on the beaver. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would yeah. be even more fun. <laughs> yeah, well, you know that's that's, that's the saddest thing with uh, today's world is most people don't realize where their their raw product actually is, where it came from. You know, I, I used to uh, to give a lot of tours at the at the auction house in North Bay, and I used to have a, there's a teachers university there. So I'd always plant the seed in the teacher's mind. What was this before it became a product? Well, you know, you're wearing running shoes. What do you think the leather? What, where does the what leather come from? And they had no clue. You no. know, they'd be wearing $100, $150 running shoes, and they're basically made from kangaroo leather. Yeah. No idea. <laughs> yeah, you know, no connection to the land. It's just no, well, no, no, it's not, a product. Not, yeah. and, and it's got worse. I, I, I mean, I come from a, a remote area in, in Alberta, and I never thought I would live long enough to where, where that connection was being lost, but it is lost now. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, and, you know, it, it's so different to see it happen that people just don't have any idea where it comes from. That's one of the funny things about the, the TV show is, is that it has put us in contact with a lot of people. Absolutely. And perhaps the saddest thing that you ever hear is people talk about, well, I thought trapping was illegal. I thought, yeah. I thought we didn't know we could do it anymore, and it's like... You know, built the country and yes it's very legal it's very very uh, viable and it's very necessary today 
so you started trapping with uh, your next door neighbor, and that built a, a obviously a, a lifetime passion. Absolutely, yeah. And I and I trap year round. I work for a company in the off season that does wildlife control work. So basically, I go from the trap line to the to the urban trap line, and then when that's done, I go back to the trap line. So that's your your full time year round your year round trapper, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, you, you you've achieved heaven. <laughs> Some days when it's 80 degrees out or, you know, 30 degrees out Celsius, it's it's not heaven. But it's yeah. it's very interesting. I mean, and I deal basically with raccoons and the big gray squirrels, you know, the large squirrels. Yes. Those are the two biggest problem animals. I just did a job in North Bay this winter. A lady called me up and she said she had uh, something in her attic. And it's the most raccoon I've ever done on a job. I took seven raccoons out of her attic. Wow. Unbelievable, yeah. Seven raccoons, 12 big squirrels. Three chipmunks and a skunk. That's what I caught on that job. <laughs> Out of one attic. Out of one place, yeah. Like one yard. I was, yeah, it was incredible. Like It's amazing. It's amazing, though. People talk about, you know, uh, so many people are against trapping and that, but, uh, you know, between the the uh, uh, pushback we're getting on trapping and, and the fact that, that prices have, fur prices have dropped, and this is the result, you know, is now we're doing more and more damage control than we've ever done. Well, absolutely, and I mean, we have urban sprawl, incredible, like, it, it's unbelievable in Ontario, like, I work in what we call the Golden Horseshoe, it's basically from uh, Toronto down to Niagara, Right. and it, you'll, you'll drive by a road, and then you'll come, you'll be, I'll be off for two weeks, I'll come back, and they started an apartment building or something, like, it's incredible how, how quick subdivisions pop up, and yeah. new housing, and it's, and it's just sprawling, sprawling, and sprawling, so it's, it's coming into conflict with animals, for sure, and so, and people aren't, aren't people today don't know how to deal with that. No, no. I mean, uh, I believe it was your son. And when I talked to your son in, in Yellowknife, uh, and he was just finishing his, uh, uh, his degree there, and he said he wrote his paper. His thesis was, was on trappers and how they created a buffer between, uh, between civilization and the wild. And it was really cool. I've actually used that, that quoted that line many, many times. Yeah, that's my oldest son, James. He went through to, for anthropology and... And uh, and it's very true. Like we have a, a skill set that's very unique, and it, and as time keeps progressing and people get further away from the land, the skills that we possess are even more valuable. And I think it's really important for trappers to be able to to make that transition if they're go if they want to do wildlife control work, to make sure the the number one thing they usually don't do is charge enough, right? Because they undervalue the skills that they have because people can't. Don't know what to do with a raccoon in the attic, or or a groundhog in, in the in the on the lawn, or or a skunk under the shed, or something. So all these different things that we take for granted, it's just 747 for most people. They just don't understand, you know. Well, and if we can, let's explore that a little bit. But uh, you know, f first off, uh, the costs. What should what does it cost to to remove a skunk or? I, I usually charge a minimum of 250 dollars. Right. Because I call it I call it the bomb. Everybody can catch the bomb, <laughs> but what do you do with it? Because you, you can buy a, a live trap in any hardware store in Ontario. Exactly. So people want to do it themselves, save a few bucks, and all of a sudden they catch a skunk, and skunks go off, right? Oh, yeah. And if it goes off in the wrong place, it's not only the smell, but it could, you know, it could, it could get on your house, and then you're trying to live with that smell or whatever, so people don't understand how to deal with it. And they'll, they'll call you up after the fact. They know you're in the business, and they say, well, I have a skunk in a cage. What can, I, what can you do for me? Good it's, luck. <laughs> it's it's two hundred and fifty dollars. I'll take care of it for you. Exactly. You know, it's, because you just don't understand. Like you just you just can't put a skunk anywhere. So. Well, and that's that's the other question now. 
what do you do with the animals? Like I, I understand that people, a lot of people today have a have an issue with they want it to be live trapped and moved somewhere else. Is that legal in in Ontario? In Ontario, we we have a law that says you can only move a, a live captured animal one kilometer. One kilometer. So I mean, it'll be back before I can before, before you, I can get back to the yeah. house. It'll it'll be back in the attic. You know, if it's a raccoon or something. So we euthanize pretty well everything we catch. Okay. And we use a carbon dioxide chamber. Right. So right. we do use a very specific proper method to to do it. And, and that's what I like to caution trappers that think they want to get into this is make sure they understand the laws for dispatch and that it's not as simple. Like you just, you can't drown them. That's against the law in Ontario. Okay. So there's a lot of little pitfalls you can fall into. And, and I think the biggest concern is you, the tools are different, slightly different because you're going to use live traps rather than kill traps. Yes. Because if you catch an incidental animal like a cat, a house yep. cat, if you catch him in a, in a 220, nobody's going to be happy. No. It's, so you have to go to the live traps and... You know, I think uh, urban wildlife control work is probably 90% dealing with people and 10% dealing with the animals. Because you have to be able to explain to people how it's going to work, what's going to be done, make them feel at ease, so what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. You know, it's just, and, and I mean, it's a lot of covert operations. Like you don't do things out in the open. Right, right. You know, and then and, and you'll see in the paper sometimes, and especially over in Scarborough, there was one this spring where, you know, a, a, a raccoon got caught in a, in a foot trap. Well, that's usually a homeowner, again, that's that's frustrated, that's trying to take things into his own hands to save some money, and then it makes a front page of the Toronto Star, which nobody wants to do. No, no. We had a, a dog get killed in, in Edmonton this, uh, this year, um, just in one of the suburbs. Or, uh, I believe it was an illegally set 330, but uh, I, I don't know don't know the final outcome. Of it. I was asked to comment on it, and I did, my simple comment was, "How many dogs got run over that day in in Edmonton?" And the guy didn't get where I was going. I said, "Well, if your dog gets run over, whose fault is that?" Well, mine. I'm supposed to control my dog. Well, I says, they, you know, then why was it the trapper's fault that the dog was was out of somebody's control and and went in there? You know, it wasn't That's like it was in his yard. No, absolutely. And it, I mean, you know, you can see how big Toronto is. Yes. Well, the the, the, the re reason we have so much urban sprawl is because everybody wants to buy five acres out in the country and build a big house. Right. And then they get there, and the first thing they do is they put up no hunting, no trapping signs, yeah. and they start letting their dog run around. Yeah. So invariably, it gets into a skunk or it gets into a porcupine or, or unfortunately, sometimes it gets into traps. And I mean, they're all mad at everybody because they don't understand it. Just because they live in the country now, it doesn't mean they don't have to have care and control that animal, you know? Well, they wouldn't let their dog, if they lived out of, down here, they, they wouldn't let their, kick Absolutely. The door open, let the door, dog out, run around. They wouldn't. Yeah, but it's a different mentality when they get out in the country until they under they, they start to understand how it works, you know? I know we, we have a, that, that issue happens with uh, our version of urban sprawl out in the prairies is, is uh, somebody moves out to, to an acreage that they kick their dog out and it starts chasing the neighbor's cattle. Oh yes, and they yeah. don't live long when that happens, yeah. and then they're upset. But yeah. <laughs> same th same thing. I mean, it's it's a totally different environment, and then there's rules in those environments too, and they just they just don't seem to understand. It takes a, I mean, I I own a dog. I'm very passionate about owning dogs, but I mean at the same time, it's frustrating to see how people just just leisurely let just let them off the leash and let them run, and it's and it causes problems. Yeah, and it, it doesn't doesn't work out good. Usually not for the dog or or for the owner. Yeah. So the, it's, uh, I understand there's, there's getting to be a real explosion of raccoon. Well, uh, Toronto's a raccoon capital of the world. 
Is that a fact? Is oh, that yeah. like I mean, a yeah. true fact? David Suzuki did a, a documentary on it on, on uh, the raccoons in Toronto. You can Google it and look check it out. But it's incredible the numbers here because Toronto has a lot of rivers that run through it, and right. they're, and they're and they're all treed well treed. So it's like just like an urban mecca for them. For they just have waterways that travel up and down, and they love dog food. So cat food they just fit right in. And people people will uh, you know cats are nocturnal, so everybody wants to kick the cat out at night. And they free free bowl it, so they'll have a bowl of food out there for it. So, once the raccoon figures out there's a meal every night, he's he's there every night getting his chair. <laughs> so it just and there's lots of old houses, there's lots of old structures in in Toronto, so it's perfect places for them to den up. So, it becomes quite a quite an issue. Well, see, we don't have any raccoon where I am, and I've I've never seen a live raccoon in the wild. Well, we <laughs> we have a raccoon. <laughs> I mean, there's no shortage of raccoon. It's you'll see them dead on the road here, all over the place. And we have a big problem right now in Ontario, more in the Hamilton area where I work all the time, is with the uh, raccoon rabies outbreak. It's been going on for four years now. So I think they're they're well over 250 cases now. So man, yeah. So that's and millions of dollars spent trying to control it now. Yeah, people don't see that side of it, do they? No, they don't understand that the no, ramifications. They, just, they they want you know they want to pat it on the head and. And, uh, you know, it's a nice animal and Disney and Kumbaya and all that kind of stuff, but they don't see the, the, the costs. I, I don't think, I think people have been Disney-fied, you know. They, they, they've watched the, all the, the uh, different uh, cartoons that come out, and starting with Bambi, and it, it, it kind of put a bad label on hunting and fishing and trapping oh, yeah. sort of thing. And yeah. it's, we're suffering from it today, but the reality is whether there's a fur trade, which is my passion, I'd much rather be fur trapping all the time, animals are going to have to be dealt with. And I mean, if you have a good skill set and you're able to communicate well, you can do very well doing urban wildlife control work. Very well. How, how many people ask what's going to happen to the animal? Pretty well everyone. Right. And I mean, it's, it's nice that we have this law in Ontario where you can only move them a kilometer away and it's easy to explain to them because the reason for the law is because you don't want to spread diseases. Right. Plus, you take an animal that's in its home range, capture it, move it, and then you're throwing it in another animal's home range, and it's going to fight. It's they're territorial, like they're absolutely just like yeah. people. Like if so, I moved into your house unannounced, it's not going to go very well. No. <laughs> and you wouldn't have to worry about me. You'd have to worry about Sandy. <laughs> Jim Comstock, you're probably yeah, yeah. very no, familiar Jim, yeah. with, uh, and his uh, his traps. He has that uh, makes those cage traps. He was telling me about in in New York they can move them. Okay, and that's what. He says overwhelmingly people want them. Want oh, absolutely, them, sure. You know, and he understands it, but he says it's it's going to come to an end as well because it's just you 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 can't keep it up. I mean, and those animals keep coming back. Well, there's actually a company in Toronto here that won't put down any animals. What they do is they'll come into your house and they'll put a one-way door on it, so the raccoon gets excluded from that house. But you have like 250 houses in a row that are all designed the same. So he knows how to pop the, the, the soffit up to get it in. So he just moves to the next house. So the guy never runs out of work. Oh he just keeps God. moving them down the street. And people actually pay for that? They don't want, they don't want to see the animal die, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's out of your yard, so it's not your problem anymore. And then it's the next guy's and the next guy. And by the time they figure it out and get outraged about it, it's 10 or 15 people have been, been uh, right. you know, paying, paying for the same raccoon to move along. <laughs> it is quite the gig, isn't it? Oh, it's it's quite the business model for sure. <laughs> Do 
So the the squirrels and uh, raccoons, skunk, and beaver those those are the the problems. Main ones, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then we well, we're we're having a lot of problems now because because of all the different ravines and the rivers that go through uh, through this the southern areas with coyotes now. Tell me about this. The, the, you guys have had a, a law enactment about red wolf or or coy wolf or, or well, you can't. It, it's uh, called gonk? it's called the Algonquin wolf. It's it's kind of a made up wolf because the. Uh, Algonquin's kind of like an island in the middle of Ontario of uh, Crown Land. It's that's a uh, park. Okay. And there's always always been wolves there, and it's a smaller eastern type wolf. It's not a true uh, timber wolf in a sense. It's a timber wolf, but it's a timber wolf that's evolved to hunt deer. So he's slightly smaller than the, his northern co- cousins. My understanding is is that genetically all wolves in North America are gray wolves. That's it. Yeah. Correct. Exactly. But this is a like a, a smaller. Yeah, it's a subspecies. It would okay. be, a, you know, a, okay. a, nature. Nature always lets animals take advantage of whatever the habitat will provide, right? So, right. Yeah. because because they're uh, been isolated and there's a good deer population that they they tend to uh, they've evolved to hunt deer, so they don't need a big moose or a big uh, wolf like a, that it takes to take down a moose. Yes. So that's the advantage. But now the problem is the coyotes have spread so much that they're they're mixing now with this this wolf. And it's it's becoming a mongrel. It's it's not even a true wolf anymore. It's got all kinds of DNA in it. Well, this w- the uh, article I read on it and the research that I've been able to done. It is the only true koi wolf. As, as much as everybody talks about koi wolves throughout Canada and the and the U.S., that it's the only true one, one that they've truly done genetic work on. It's a very controversial <laughs> subject in Ontario, and I. I, I like but all the same, it's a hybrid. Yeah, that, it's a that, hybrid that has been caused because of uh, of the the uh, well, loss of habitat tat, or population changes what the, forcing what them together. What they're trying to do now is they're trying they're shutting down trappings in township after township. At first, they they had the Algonquin Park. There was no trapping, and then they they included twenty five townships around the park about ten years ago, and now they've expanded it again. And what they're trying to do is keep truer genetics of this wolf rather than have it interbreed with the coyotes but in nature well, how there's does that work though it doesn't work because in nature there's losers and winners right now the winners are the coyotes absolutely i mean they're just they've expanded their range if you went back to the 50s there was basically no coyotes uh east of the mississippi river now they're, they're across right across north america including the island of newfoundland right i was out in newfoundland there 15 years ago and we, we had a little workshop and they were saying what are we going to do? we got coyotes here. I said, well, teach your trappers how to catch coyotes because they're not going away anymore. They are once, they're, they're once they're the in, ultimate survivor. Yeah, they are. Cockroaches and coyotes at the end yeah, of the world. Yeah, everybody talks about if the if nuclear bomb went off, there'd be cockroaches or rabbits. No, the coyote would be there eating the oh, rabbit. Yeah, yeah. whatever's <laughs> left. Yeah. Probably feeding on the cockroaches. Yeah. <laughs> but really, you know, my true passion in life is, is fur trapping. I have I, I have access to three registered trap lines. I have my own registered trap line. My wife has a registered trap line, and my dad has a registered trap line. So I'd much rather spend my time catching fur for the fur trade, especially one of the things I really like catching is pine marten. I'm a little sour on the beaver now because I mean Ontario is pretty well. If you if you fly over Ontario, it's it's all water. Right. Yeah. And there's you know we have the potential in in the 1980 79 80 season we produced. 225,000 beaver in Ontario. That's mostly because of your quota system, correct? Part of it, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, all through the 80s, when the fur trade was at, you know, was its last really big run there, we produced over 150,000 beavers a year in Ontario. Wow. Now the harvest is around 50,000. Right, right. So those other beavers are still coming out of the system. 
Yes. But now the mining companies are paying you to do it. The railway companies, the highway guys, cottagers, landowners, you know, it's it's coming out a different way. And it's kind of sad in a way because, you know, for instance, like we're having a great run with coyotes right now. Yep. And, and the and the trim it's going on, on the different parkas. And you don't have as many problems with coyotes because there's a fur market for them and that take, it's taking care of itself. Well, Alberta, like on average, you're shipping 40,000 coyotes a year. Absolutely. You can imagine if that's not being taken out of the system. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, it's the, and, and the trappers are doing it for free. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's compared to, to cost incurred with it. How, whereabouts are your trap lines, your registered lines? How far north are they? Well, if my first line is four hours north of here, and then my other two lines are eight hours north of here. Okay. So up in pretty remote area? Yeah. They, yeah. Well, my first line's in North Bay, and then my other two lines are in Timmins. That Timmins is my hometown. That's where I okay. grew up. In. And how large would how large of area are your trap lines? Uh, two hundred and four square kilometers in one, and I think one hundred and ninety four is the other one. And oh. my my other one in North Bay is a bit smaller. It's probably about one hundred and sixty. And how do you get around on them? Well, uh, mostly I have I use everything. I use boats, motors. I use uh, ATVs. I use skidoos. I, some of the roads have access. So I can drive on them. So I'll, whatever it takes, I'm in. So the water waterways are your are your big highway. Yeah, and big part of it for sure. Yeah. So you you have that tough point between where the transition period. Yeah. yeah, it's too thick for the boat and too thin for yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for oh, the yeah. every year. Yeah, <laughs> but if you don't, know, if you plan it right, because then you 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 can usually run your roads for ten days or fifteen days until it really firms up. Right. So I've always fooled around. Like, it's nice if you can do it is to take your beaver in the open water just before freeze up, you know, to try to get your maximum price out of them, because it's too much work now to take them under the ice because you get basically the same price you get for under ice beavers you do fall beaver which is not very good right uh, but I, I do it then anyway because i'm out there running for at the same time i'm out running for lynx and, and yeah. otter and that and i do my beaver through the through the ice and i i have a little different focus too but i i, I like to well take when care. you have to catch 120 you try to find I know. a way to do it <laughs> i'd be out shooting <laughs> yeah because in, in Ontario, we're we're regulated by by uh, by law to trap seventy five percent of our assigned beaver quotas. Yeah. So it uh, you try to find the, the easiest and the best way to do it, the most efficient way. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And we don't throw our caster away right now. No. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> do you get a lot of snow on your lines? This year is the most snow that I've seen in twenty years minimum. It's really? an unbelievable how much snow we had this year. It's it's uh, it just started snowing. It hardly snowed until the, about the uh, just before Christmas, and it didn't stop until the middle of March. Yeah. And I mean, I keep bees, and I and uh, I finally was able to unwrap my bees, but I'm still I'm still not able to really go through my hives and clean them all up and get them get them ready before because swarming season will start here in a couple of weeks because it's going to switch. But it's just continuously we've had quite a bit of flooding in Ontario. If you yes. notice in the news, yeah. Yeah. that's all because of the incredible amount of snow we had this year. Yeah. And I mean. Most of the time, nature can handle it, but when it starts to rain, it can't do both. No. That's where the problem is. No. And I was up in Gogama there last Saturday, not not this Saturday, it just passed, but the Saturday before, and Gogama is basically between Sudbury and Timmins, and they still had over two feet of snow in the bush. Wow. So if it turns, and sometimes it turns like that, if it goes to 25 degrees or something and it starts to rain, there's going to be a lot of flooding in North Bay and Sudbury yet. I like how we have, uh, you know, a higher than average snowpack, and then, and then we have a little bit of an accelerated spring, and all of a sudden it's it's uh, it's climate change and that. It's not got nothing to do with the fact that we're building on floodplains for the last hundred years, you know. <laughs> well, you know, down in this part of the world where where it's farm country, every farmer's towel drained his fields now. 
Yeah. So it rains. It rains over here, and it's in Lake Ontario in 20 minutes because yeah. it's, it's just out it goes. You know, and it's like parking lots, right? Exactly. It's the flooding that you exactly. know caused by all the all the. Uh, pavement and concrete we have in in the city here every time they make a 250 house subdivision and then they, beside that they make themselves a little place to put a walmart up and everything else and it just it's just incredible the amount of land they're gobbling up and it's it's sad in a way because we have some of the best farmland anywhere but they just keep building on it there's just no stopping them it's just incredible well we, we see that uh out west too because you have the you know incredible farmland but that's where they you know because the farmers were there they, so they they built a town there yeah. and now now these subdivisions are going over top of uh, land that has you know two feet of black dirt yeah that's you know, that's it, criminal but that's just the way the, that it was set up you know no no future planning right yeah yeah, yeah. martin martin are your are, are your favorite how yeah, many yes. martin would you catch in a in a season average season well my quotas are are about 150 Okay, now that's a maximum. That's my maximum catch, yeah. So it's not like my beaver quota. They don't care if I catch one, but don't go past 150. Okay. Now, in, in the last few years, because of, there's so much commercial logging done on my our, our registered lines because we're we're multi-use type of structure, my martin catch has been way down. So I'm yeah. lucky now to catch 50 martin in a good year. Okay. And your your favorite way of catching, your favorite set? Basically a horizontal box in a, in a 120. Right. And my favorite trap is a Savage Old 2001-5. Okay. So do you put that on the ground? I, I usually put it on a running pole. Okay. And I've, uh, I used to put it horizontally. I used to leave two wings on the side of my boxes and nail them right up to the tree. You're right. And it worked perfect for years. But re just recently, I because my North Bay line, I have as many fisher as I have Martin. Yes. And I'll get refusals. So I've been playing, playing with the set. So now I make a... I'll take a six-inch tree, cut it off at four feet, angle it, and I'll actually put a running pole right up and I'll mount the box right on top. Okay. And what I do, you know, you always have that issue with the bait kind of trying to roll out on you and you're wiring the bait in or something. So what I do is I take my chainsaw and I cut a flat spot on top of my uh, running pole. Gotcha. So it makes, it makes a really nice set. Yeah. I always just cut a piece of um, half-inch mesh. Yeah. And throw the bait in, shove that okay. in on it, because my box is tapered. Yeah, perfect. And, and uh, that that holds it in place. Speaking of bait and lure, do you have a favorite bait and lure for Martin? Beaver. Be well, yeah, of course. We got lots of beaver. <laughs> no, never do shortage you, of beaver. Do you, do you like it fresh or tainted? Fresh. Okay. Because I, I, some people like it. They they leave it on the floor in the garage until it's rolling, and then it's time to. <laughs> well, and that's that's one thing I really watch is I have a couple of spare freezers, and I process my beaver in the fall. So I cut the heads off, and I gut them. But I leave, always leave the tail on for a handle. Okay. And then I freeze them like that. And I'll fill a freezer or even two freezers just with carcasses minus the, minus the parts. And then those parts that I don't use, I take them out and I start my wolf uh, dumps with them. Right. So I take and I, and I learned a trick from a friend of mine, Fern, uh, Fernier, where we bury the bait. You know, we have issues with ravens or magpies yep. or whatever stealing yep. all your bait. So what we do is we dig a hole roughly the size of a five-gallon pail. Yes. And every time we go in there, we dump it, and then we'll just cover it with it leaves and dirt because ravens can't dig. No, they can't. Yeah. And so, and I'll throw a few scraps around to get them squawking, but every time the wolf pack comes through, they're good at digging. They're gonna, they're thinking they're getting one up on the next guy, and it really, really works well for us. And it's a way to control the bait. Plus, it it doesn't uh, 
make a huge present. You know, like you see guys that'll go out with a pickup load of bait and they'll throw it all over the place. Well, every bird for 200 miles is there. Well, that's what you're feeding is birds. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'll bet 80 or 90 percent. Absolutely. Of, uh, in some some cases, like I didn't have wolves come to my trap line at all last year, so that's all I fed. Well, and the, a few coyotes. Yeah, yeah. I no. mean, I know there was a few coyotes because I, I actually got to skin them this year because they usually if I catch a coyote on a wolf bait, the wolves eat it. Okay, but right. the, the, yeah, that's our koi wolf out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that turd laying there. That was that's a koi wolf. So that that that's the way it works for me. But you know what I did this year? I, I do the same thing as you uh, process my beavers. I, I take and gut them, and then that goes into a payout for for the wolf baits and all that. I took and chopped a bunch of them up. I chopped them up, pre-chopped them and everything, and put them into like 10 liter Rubbermaid totes. You can put about three, three, almost four, um, 30, 40 pound beaver in that, that tote. Like, I mean, that's minus the head and the tail yeah, and, the, yeah. and the guts, but I, it's amazing how much you put in there. And then when it comes time to, to set boxes, well, you got all those fist sized chunks in there. And well, I made a huge mistake one year as I processed all my beaver and I didn't put them in plastic bags oh. and I threw them all in the freezer. <laughs> when, if, when you have a block freezer, it's almost impossible to get them out of there. And you know what? It's really hard to swing an axe in a oh, narrow yeah. area like that. Oh, yeah. It doesn't Ask work. me how I know. Yeah. 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 So, so every step has a process. Yeah. And, and usually, for especially for men, there's a learning curve involved. Yeah. yeah. Lots of wolves on your line? There can be, yeah, for sure, yeah. You, you wipe out the pack, and then it takes them a year or so to come back, and they move back in again. Right. And I was doing a lot of... Uh, I've been heavily involved with the Fur Institute of Canada for a number of years, and I was doing some work with the trap research, testing different models of, of wolf traps. Right. So we would dirt hole them out in the fall, and that was very interesting because there's a really stiff protocol you have to follow. Okay. You know, you have to document all your catches, and you have to you can't take pictures of the animal when he's alive for trophies because you don't want any stress on the, on the wolf and that. So we were testing a couple of different models of traps, and it's a it's kind of a real eye opener because what I learned is. Somebody, you know, an av- a trapper will find an improvement in a trapper. He'll design the trap or something, but he doesn't really have the field staff to actually take it out in the field and really see if it works or not. And the first one we ever did was uh, we did the uh, Bilal foot snare. Yes. And we had uh, 45 of them we set. And two days later, we dug them all up because the tabs would fall off. And it was just something you found out. When you run numbers of traps. Yes. That's when it, if you run two or three or 10, it doesn't really tell you much, but you run 30, 40, 50 traps, you learn a lot of stuff in a hurry. So how is the tabs falling off? Well, it's just when he made the original ones, there's little tabs that hold the springs on because the, yeah. the way the Bilal foot snare works is that all the, all the uh, wire, the, the springs do is hold it on long enough for the snare to cinch. Yeah. And then it's supposed to fall off. Okay. That's made by design, but... He would take parts from his coyote model and adapted them to his wolf model because the dyes are so expensive, right, when you're yes, making traps. Yes. So we found that the, there's little tabs that hold, and then a certain amount of force makes them spring fall off. Oh. Well, they so, were all falling off oh, right so away. That was the 8-inch wolf model. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. 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 I've, I've used the 6-inch a lot. Okay. But I've never well, used the 8-inch. And what he did with the 8-inch uh, is he took the coyote pan and he tried to keep it for the wolf. Well, you know how much bigger a wolf foot is compared to a coyote. Yes. The wolves would actually step on it and not set the trap off. Oh, so we yeah. had them increase the size of the pan by 33%. That's fascinating. Yeah, it, it was. It was very much. And then we worked one year with the lay trap from the fellows in the BC, and we worked with the coral trap a few times. So Dan Lay, the, he, yeah. this is the 76. Yeah. Model 76. Yeah, that 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 was the, the most powerful trap I've ever used in my life. <laughs> you don't weigh enough to set it, do you? 
You I see early way enough. <laughs> you, you use setters to set it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is a big, big wolf trap, and it's the maximum size. It's got, what, nine inch or nine and a quarter inch spread? Yeah, at least nine and a half. Nine. It's a huge trap. And you get up and you stand on top of the springs. and, and You're dancing. You're, you're, yeah, I, I have to push down and reach down and, and pull myself together with it to, to, to set it. That's how powerful it is. Yeah. Rod Graham says, said that it's about Lodge Chan, but Rod's a bigger boy than I am. <laughs> Well, I was, I was using a stick to set him off one time when we were shutting it down, and I wasn't paying attention, and I got whacked right between the eyes with the stick because I wasn't paying attention. So after that, I was pretty cautious. <laughs> so that, that passed, or did you have any modifications that have to be done for that? Uh, we didn't. We, we, you need to catch 20 wolves in order to get it to pass. Right. So your sample size, generally speaking, is 20, so you need 16 passes out of 20. We hadn't caught enough wolves yet to say if it was yay or nay. Oh, okay. Okay, and that was just the just trapping. Yeah, just yeah. Tra just for trapping on my line. Yeah. No, that's that's what I mean. It was just it was just trapping. It was yeah. Just, just it wasn't any no anything from the, the the trap side of it. It was just the the way it's worked out. Having had the, the animals. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And the coral, it the coral passed. Coral is very very close. I don't know if it's passed yet, but it's. I think they only need one or two more catches to to get it to pass. When does all the wolf traps have to be certified? I believe that they're I, the best, the safest thing would be to check with the Fur Institute of Canada and look at their trap research, their trap right. list. That'll right. tell you. But I believe it's coming into effect shortly. Yeah. If I, it hasn't already. Yeah. 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 You're right. So Lynx was what sixteen on the footholds. Yeah. It's it's going to. But you, you, usually, what they try to do is wait till they have seven or eight different models that pass. Yeah. Before they they. They, 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 and then they give you a three-year phasing period when they do put it up. How does it work then, though, that there was, there used to be, now maybe, maybe this has changed, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it used to be that, that you could, uh, because of the cost involved in, in these traps, that you could alter your own. You could take a, a, a trap and, and, like, you could you could uh, put stops on it or, or you could... Yeah, it's usually laminating that's usually the big one. Yeah. Yeah, that's usually, and I, and I believe with the wolf traps, traps, they're still able to do it. Okay. Like you can't do it with the when we were doing a lot of the the uh, testing on the kill type traps with the Connie bears, the rotating jaw traps, you couldn't modify them enough to make them work to no. to, to to do it. So that's like we lost out in the the one twenty victors or whatnot. Yeah, you couldn't modify them enough to make them to to reach a standard. You know. Well, I noticed that a lot of uh, those body grip traps that that, that they had a, a pre uh, certified model and then a post certified model. Yeah. And I guess the biggest difference was they became a, a zero clearance trap that's basically post. it yeah because yeah. the you know yet we're on our third generation uh rotating jaw traps the first generation you used to have enough just, you could put your fingers in in between the jaws and it wouldn't pinch you right so then the second gen generation come and they started having like you know bends so that they would close tighter and then the third generation come out usually with the extra striking bar yeah yeah, yeah. and we I mean, we have we have really good traps i mean the if anybody's followed along and i followed through the whole thing i first started trapping martin it was a one and a half on the ground foothold yes. and now we're right into uh like my my favorite trap is the savage 2001-5 and it's actually a little scary yeah for but martin <laughs> it is but i have a lot of incidental fisher so that's why i really like it i you know and i've uh i've never used it i've uh i like the uh, belial yeah and i, I have some. both 120s and 160s yeah and i i catch just as many fisher in the 120 as and, and it kills them kills them dead what you're missing is your big dogs that's that's where guys miss out a lot of times because one of the things that really drives me as a trapper is my misses. Right. I study 
When I have a trap set off, I want to know why that trap went off. See, I don't, I do not ever have an empty trap. Well, <laughs> watch a little closer because I, I know, I, I know when they're when they're set off and 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 uh, there's nothing in it. I walk up, there'll be hair there, and and there'll be lynx tracks, and then the lynx lynx will have, have have taken taken the squirrel or whatever and ate it. I, I don't have empties. I just don't. And uh, maybe I'm fortunate. Maybe maybe now you've jinxed me. <laughs> yeah. When you say, like when you set enough traps, you'll get some miss. You'll get some misses. Uh, I uh, yeah. I I don't disagree with you. I, yeah. It just I don't very often. Yeah. No, it doesn't. But that's one of the things that that when I did the trap researching, uh, especially with the wolf traps, your miss is more important than the catch because when you have a catch, it's all over. Yeah. You know, you pat yourself on the back. You're smiling. It's a great day. But when you miss something. That's when you gotta. That's what. That's what will make you a better trapper because you, you got to figure out why it missed. So you think that that a fisher is springing the trap and, and getting free? The big dog fishers, because you're catching them by the snout, because it doesn't go behind their head. Right. You don't think I, that would crush its skull and kill it? No. Seriously? No, no. Absolutely not. Huh. I mean, I've caught. I catch. I use. I, what I like to use a lot of times now is the one sixty Belisle. Yes. Because I, I would use two twenties for Fisher, and I would make one twenty sets for for Martin, but the, the Martin don't care. They run up the pole and get caught in the two twenties, and I would get some fur damage because there's too much trap, especially for females. Yeah. yeah. Not so much with the males, but the females. So I switched to the one sixties, and that's when I, because I get refuse, I get refusals. So you might not have, he might not have set up the tra set off the trap, but he came to the box, he checked it out, but he wouldn't commit to going into a one twenty size trap. Really. And I and I that's I watch that all the time, and that's why I've kind of migrated away and gone to 160s on my my North Bay line, not so much in my Timmins line because it's an incidental fisher up there. Right. It's mostly Martin, but here it's 50-50. So. Oh, cool. cool. And then, then that's when I start getting the big dogs. Like you'll catch uh, large mediums like juvenile Martin or juvenile Fisher, and you'll catch the female Fisher every time in the, in the 120s, no problem. But it's the big dogs. And those are the more aggressive ones that I like to kind of take out of the population. They don't pay us as well. Yeah. But, you know, as a, as a killing machine, he's a pretty efficient little guy, you know, oh. especially when you get him like 15 pounds, 17 pounds. That's, those are pretty big animals. I've never, never, uh, I've, I've seen one in Alberta that was 15 pounds. I, my biggest was over 14. But I mean, and it came in a 120. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, you, I'm not saying you won't catch him. Yeah. No, but I mean. Uh, I mean, and he he rammed his head in there like oh, yeah. he, he was determined. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. You're, you're right. right when you say they're aggressive. You got to thaw right out to get it to drop off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because yeah, they get that cranium build up in the in their skull there. Yeah. 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 I've, I had him mounted because he he was he was awesome. Yeah. Uh, do you have a quota on Fisher? Uh, yes and no. Okay. On my northern lines, there's it's an open quota because we're trying to manage for for Martin, and then in my southern, my North Bay line, I have a quota of, of on my Fisher. And and how much is that? Two. Two. Ten and two. Ten Martin, two Fisher. Okay. So it's 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 always interesting because you can't really put up a sign saying no Fisher Fisher. No, allowed. I know, I know. It's it's. Uh, I'm I'm allowed uh, eighteen Fisher, and and when I catch that, I got I, sh I shot down my Martin and everything. And, Okay. You know, so, sometimes one one year in particular, I I, I had eight, I had nineteen Fisher, and I had seven Martin. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> well, and, and the Martin cycle too, right? If you if you've been at it long enough, you'll notice that the yep. Martin really cycle. Fisher are pretty steady, I find, but the Martin really cycle. Well, my uh, I got a buddy. Um, he's the uh, the president of our local, 
And he literally from my house, and you know, I'm just across the river from, from, from Gordy. From my house, he's just in, in the Saddle Hills. So he's, he's, you know, 10 kilometers away from me. And that mostly, you know, like it's uh, hardwood hills and there's farmland on both sides. Normally he catches in that, that 20 to 30 Martin a year. This last year he got over 80. Wow, and they they were juveniles. Yeah, so it was just like well, boom. They, oh yeah, they the, cycle. The population yeah. exploded. Oh, oh yeah, right? and I've seen that all my life. You can go three years with nothing, and then all of a sudden it, it, it kind of rains Martin all, all of a sudden. You know, yeah. it's just I don't know if it's because it's a, a nice spring. It's, I, I think a cold, wet spring slows them down and probably kills a lot of the kids. It does kill a lot of them, yeah. You know, and I, I think a nice dry spring, lots of lots of snow in the winter helps because then they can stay under the, under in the cold weather and hunt mice. And well, it's funny you talk about that because I've been doing a lot of research on. It. I've been I've been writing a, a an article on, and I really got really in depth in this. And so I've done a lot of research. I've been driving people, anybody that who's ever had a name on a Martin paper, I've been. I've been getting in touch with, and it it, it uh, the studies have shown that Martin do better where there's more than uh, an average of, of six inches of snow a month. Yeah. So that gives them that that ability to go under the yeah. snow and live. Yeah. And Fisher do better where there's less. Than, yeah. Yeah. You know. So so it's interesting. You had and and another thing is is cold. Is that at the, is that Martin uh, carry the least amount of fat for any of the mustelids, yeah. and so they they can actually freeze to death. Yeah. You know, like we had. The, an old-fashioned February back home. We had lots of 40 below in February. And it was nothing to go go along the the, the, the snowmobile trail. And you'd see voles and you'd see pygmy shrew. We had a terrible amount of pygmy shrew this year. But they'd be frozen to death. Okay. They would they would come out, get onto the snowmobile trail, and then they couldn't get back in. Couldn't get the... back in and they expired. Because they, they're, a, they're a high-energy user too, right? Yes. Yeah. And Martin is a high-energy yeah. as well. Yeah. And so why a Martin is so easy to flesh? Because yeah. that fat is very, very temporary. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so it's kind of funny to, to see a, a fur bearer that doesn't like the cold, and yeah. and you know they they, they discover that it, at minus twenty is they start going underneath the snow, yeah. you know, and yeah, they almost like they when you're trapping, they almost in that cold weather they seem to disappear. Well, and that, that's where we've had a lot of uh, people talking about uh, the last couple of years. All oh, Martin Martin numbers are down, Martin numbers are down, but we've had some old fashioned winters. You know, and we're we're actually having more snow than, than than we had previously. Like you take in the the late '90s and and the early 2000s. I mean, we had winters where where we built houses all all winter yeah, long. Exactly, it yeah. was crazy. Yeah, and so now we're getting back to the more that that traditional. So I, I want to ask you this, and and here's here's the question: Do Fisher have uh, an impact on the Martin population? And and I wanna I wanna just set this up a bit because when I started on this last trap line that I got, we were just uh, we were a couple years uh, past the end of of the, uh, the the warm winters and that and and the low snow and we started to get into cold winters and 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 much more snow and so at the same time that I'm starting to take Fisher off of this line, you know the the weather is starting to become more cooperative towards the Martin. Now my my Martin or my, my Fisher are I'm usually around a dozen Fisher instead of my eighteen, and my Martin I, I'm I'm thirty five to to forty five kind of thing for, for the winter. So was it the was it the fisher or was it the weather? Well, what I what I found in my experience is Ontario is very flat, and they do a lot of commercial logging, and I found that it devastates the martin when they first cut, and then within five years your fisher population starts to come up. Okay. And they do way better in a young succession forest than what the martin do because the martin need the canopy for protection, right? The fisher are big. They're rough and tough. They take on. They try to take on everybody. They're basically our eastern wolverines, as I call them, sort of thing. We don't have wolverine to speak of in Ontario, except for a little patch in the very north northwestern part of the province. 
and they're very aggressive and they do very well in a young force. But as that force starts to, you know, once it gets into the 30-year range, well, then it starts to favor the Martin again because there's canopy and there's cover again. So it, there's dynamics that go on all the time there, I think. That's fascinating. I know that one of the, the studies that I read talked about Martin and the fact that a certain size of open spot to them was as big as a barrier as a wall. So in, in the case of a road. Yeah, absolutely. Once, once a road started hitting 50 meters or wider in, yeah. in width, that was, they wouldn't cross. It's, fen- it's almost like a fence for them. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, because I, they, I, you know, the owls at night and, and the lynx during the day, lynx are actually a huge predator huge. of them. Oh yeah. Uh, even more so than, than fisher. In the, I've in the killed studies. a few lynx because they've eaten my Martin out of the, yeah. well, I, exa- actually I adapted to that because I would hang lynx snares around my Martin boxes. Yeah. Because when my because our links cycle quite a bit, and I have a quota of sixteen links, so at certain times when the links are real top end of their cycle, they're eating as many martin as I'm catching, sort of thing. Because I like to, I always aim to have my martin hanging high and dry. Yes, but it's perfect. Like you can't stop a links from walking along. Just walk up a fade, and yeah. then you get there, and all he's got it left in the trap is the head. <laughs> Well, I have on my trap line, my trap line is square, and I have a major oil road that comes in up in the in the northeast corner, and it goes around like this, and I have 42 kilometers of this on, on there. And where it comes across the south end, most of my Martin, when I first started there, was all over in the southeast corner, and there was, you know, a couple miles between my boundary and, and, and this road. And I would catch Martin in this corner, and I'd catch right up to the, to the south, south ditch of this road, and I, but I would not catch anything across the road. And it was just blew me away. And I, as the 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 years went on, uh, and I, I was catching more fish and more lynx, and, and the winters were changing. And I, all of a sudden, I started catching uh, martin up uh, to the north of the road. But they were it was like you could plot it on you know you you have catch maps and, and you plot every year. Well, they were coming right straight out of the east. It wasn't like they were coming out of the south and crossing the road, but they're coming out of the east and that. And it, and the ones that are on the bottom marched right across the bottom south of the south end of the, of the and line you, and you get that a lot of too like you, you, you your biggest uh, challenge in alberta is the oil and gas industry because yeah. they're they're making seismic lines all over the place right yep but us up here it's it's basically uh logging and the, the first time they drive the road through it's 150 meters wide it's like a big fence through the forest yeah but 10 or 15 years later it basically becomes a tag alter one one track trail again and then the martin are going back and forth you know yeah yeah, yeah. but it takes a long time for them to recover it's not uh Fisher always do way better in the younger forest. And I, where I really started paying attention to this, what actually made me start researching it was was traveling on my, my creeks, rivers, and and, uh, and lakes. And every time you'd see a track, and, and you know, I mean, a, a weasel or mustelids track is very distinctive going across, with, whether it's a mink or fish or whatever it is, very distinctive. And I look at it and I go, look at it, every time it's a fisher. And then I get thinking, why don't Martin cross a lake? And that's what that, that's actually what started it. And then, yeah. Somebody had already done a study on it. It was fascinating. You know, and, and there's been some interesting research done in the Northwest Territories in the big burns that they have sometimes, because sometimes yeah. they just let them burn. And the Martins seem to move back into those in that area in five years. Yes. Which is kind of bizarre, but they have a bigger Martin than, than traditionally we have, in the, especially in Ontario here. Much bigger Martin. So maybe he's able to, to fend for himself in the open a bit more. But it's really interesting when I talk to the guys in the North, Northwest Territories and say, oh, yeah, the Martin come back in five years after a burn. Yeah. Yeah. They might not come back for 25 years after a clear cut in my area. <laughs> yeah, clear, clear cut is a whole different animal compared to oh, a burn. absolutely, for sure. Right in the center of my wife's line, they had a huge burn. 
and it's it's almost I call it a lynx factory because it's full of rabbits and it's yeah. new growth and everything and it's it's not great for the martin yet but it, it'll have its day because there's so many habitat trees and the thing that's nice about a fire is it burns a pocket, leaves a pocket, burns a pocket. So yeah, you have that fragmented habitat that when it comes back, it's it's super. Well, it creates a lot of edges. It creates yeah. a lot more yeah. edges yeah. Than, than, than a normal, than a clear cut does. So is what are they clear cutting there? Is that hardwood or, or is it softwood? Softwood. Pine. Softwood, yeah. yeah. Mostly pine and then the, a, lot of, a lot of black spruce in the swamps for uh, for paper and that. So, Be glad that they're not doing, doing the uh, hardwood because... That they never seem to use again, and that's that's mostly what gets logged on my line is is poplar for for OSB, right? Right, right. And I still, you know, the uh, the poplar were twelve feet tall, the, the regrowths are twelve feet tall, and some of the Daishawa uh, log stuff on my line, and still there's nothing in there. Still, I don't, I don't. I don't and it's uh, you've probably just got poplar coming back in too, right? Yeah, yeah. They so don't even re, they don't have to replant poplar. No, it's but it's 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 monoculture. It's just one one species there. It's not good for the forest, you know. Well, it's actually better though than than what happens when they do softwood because do you, do they spray here? Oh yeah. Well, they, they they spray and then they do the pre-commercial thinnings, so they space out the trees and all that. So yeah. Well, I don't I don't know so much about the pre pre-commercial sp- uh, thinning in in Alberta, but my son's trap line, uh, they. They do a lot of logging there, and then when they replant, they replant just with with pine. They because spruce yeah. is too hard to, to replant, yeah. so they replant with with pine, and and they spray it all. You go back, and it is as sterile. I mean, there 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 are more tracks on, on the 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 road out here in front of the hotel than there is yeah, in the you snow have to, underneath You have to that walk pine. that thousand feet to the back of the cut and to see where the tracks are, really. Yeah, yeah, like nothing yeah. because there's yeah. not even there's not mice or rabbits or anything in there. Well, right? and and and. You know, just because it was commercial logging, they were forced to cut down every every live standing or every snake, yeah. every dead standing tree, and yeah. so there's there's it's just it's just pine basically, right? There's nothing it's, else. All it is Not is pine, good. and yeah. and, and no, nothing can can survive. Well, I mean, it's great habitat for a porcupine, but <laughs> well, I, I put up uh, fifty of the martin boxes, you yeah. know, the nesting boxes, yes. to experiment with them, and what I found is that at about twenty four or twenty five years after uh, regen, when it's been planted. Then, then I start getting some usage. Now, I'm not saying it's Martin, but everybody seems to be looking to use a box because there's lacking that nesting, that 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 reproduction habitat. You know, like right. you can have the perfect. It looks great, but it's like you say, it's sterile because there's not a there's not a dead standing tree in there for them to have a habitat tree. You know. Well, what bothers me is that uh, there's there's no there's no buckbrush, there's no willow, there's there's no nothing in there for for, for yeah. a rabbit or a squirrel yeah. or anything deep. Yeah. You know, when you have solid pine like that, those. The, Pine by its very nature, those needles falling down sterilize the ground yeah, for anything very else. Very acidic, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and so there's just nothing that exists there. Yeah, and it, but it, um, it's interesting on my fortune line. Those were about my best martin habitat when they're when they're 60, 70, 80 years old. That's where I, all my martin would be. And, and that was in re- reinforced reinforced stated areas. Well, it was or pre- burn. Yeah, burns. Yeah, okay. we would have natural burns, and then they would come in and clear cut them, and then it would take the where I built my trap camp. In Fortune Township on McCree Lake, it took 33 years after they cut before I caught a martin again. 33 years. 33 years. So, if you live long enough, they come back. <laughs> well, that, that's just it. I mean, in, in, uh, our our thing is uh, is leases in Alberta, and the the whole idea behind a lease, you know, whether it's an oil lease or a, or a road lease or whatever, is that it's temporary. Well, yeah. it's not temporary in my lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. It's, it's permanent, right? Talk about burns, though. I I remember back a buddy of mine, his trap line. It wasn't a very big line, and it had he had a burn go through it probably 
15 years ago and it was like martin heaven yeah oh and he would he would laugh at me because he would you know it's this tiny little trap line it was a township and 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 he was 60 70 martin yeah just like nothing and then we had a big wind okay <laughs> and, he, and he worked for four days and, and managed to cut 100 yards and he's and he gave up i don't know i don't know if he's ever went back <laughs> that was bad because that, that burn was just old enough when that big wind come it just everything just flattened when the, when i first got my trap line in 1983 in fortune township I used to, my quota was 70 Martin, and I would catch 70 Martin every year, like, just, I didn't know what I was doing when I was catching 70 Martin. Yeah. Right? And then they were cutting. And I, I would say the average age of my, the force in, in my area was, you know, into the hundreds, well into the hundreds. And first thing they did is they drove logging roads into the oldest stands to get, to turn them over, which made sense when you're talking wood fiber, but not so much when you're a trapper. But I seen as my forest got younger, as he took out the older stands, my marten population started to go down. And then all of a sudden, one year, I got a fisher. And I almost petted the fur off of it because I'd never <laughs> caught a fisher before. And then I started catching 70 marten and a fisher. Then I would catch 70 marten and three fisher. And then all of a sudden, I was catching 50 marten and 10 fisher. And it just seemed to, but all the, all the while, at the same time, they were cutting. Right. So they just changed the dynamics to the point where I would catch 10 marten and I could catch 20 fisher. You know, it really? just, that's how much it changed. Because the, the fisher can utilize that new forest much yeah, better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 20-year-old forest for a fisher is perfect because there's rabbits in it, you know, and it's great yeah. for them, you know. It's, is that because they're more aggressive? or I and, think so. And, and so they're not, not concerned about being ate as bad. Like, I mean, everything eats a marten, right? Yeah, everything, yeah, for sure. Owls get them and, yep. you know, everybody. Lynx are on them. Like, everybody's after a, a marten. I mean, he's a... You know, when you really look at it, he's a much more fragile animal than what a fisher is, you know? Oh, yeah, very delicate. You skin a fisher, and he's got 20, pie, 20 uh, porcupine quills sticking in him, like, and it d doesn't even seem to fizz on him, you know? Well, I, I don't get a lot of that, but you, you do hear it, do you? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah? Especially on my North Bay line, lots of lots of quills in it. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, and it is until you stick your finger on one. Oh, I bet you, yeah. And it still works. <laughs> you mentioned uh, FIC and that you've been involved with the FIC, so explain what the FIC is and what, the, what their mission is. Okay, so the Fur Institute of Canada is a round table of the fur industry. So it doesn't, it's not just about trapping. It's, it's not, you know, we have government people that sit with us. There's trade people, the auction houses sit with us. There's fur farmers with us. It's a whole round table of the fur industry. It's, it's kind of unique because it's uh, one of the advantages we've had in Canada is we basically, as regulations have come into force, we've been able to keep them pretty well right across the country. When you look at the U.S., everybody thinks they got a better deal with us with the when we have the agreement on humane trapping and the trap standards and that, but they're losing the right to trap state by state. Right. You don't see that issue here in Canada. No. And one of the reasons for that is because of the Fur Institute of Canada and, and the roundtable of the industry sitting down with provincial government, federal government, the trapping, some of the trapping uh, associations, and all the different players of the fur industry actually sit once a year at least sitting there talking to each other. Okay. So that's a that's one of the big things that the Fur Institute does. And we do a lot of work behind the scenes that, you know, we don't really want to throw out in, in the public. But, you know, for example, there's fur bans going on in cities right now, right? Right. So I've, you, I've heard they're trying to do it in New York. And New York's, yeah. And there's another one coming up. And we're, we're working really hard now to, to, to put, that, put that to bed because it's in California interestingly in LA they they ban the sale of fur coats but they can't sell the f they can't ban the sale of wild fur they can sell they can ban ranch fur 
because wildfire is a is a legally authorized uh, activity in the state, so they can't they can't put law on top of that. But because fur farming is fur farming, they can they can outlaw fur stores by by doing that. Because it's an agricultural. Product. It's an agricultural product, and they get around it. But it, because it's it's regulated. Now New York again is a New York is that this is a this is a a big battle for us because that's a very critical fashion center in the world. Right. And everybody talks about the Chinese market, but what the Chinese do mostly is copy things. Yes. They'll take whatever. They'll take a hat and they'll and they'll figure a way to make it cheaper and mass produce it and and live off it that way. Whereas New York's a very high end, very high end fashion uh, location, and there's there's quite a bit of garments made in in uh, New York and and high end fashion ones that people will copy. So that's a big battle for us, and that's one we can't afford to lose. I have. Like I, I, I understand the uh, the ranching, and but I, I kind of have an issue where I feel like, like they use, the trapper as, as justification for for their own industry. And and I, I kind of I, I don't I'm not happy with how they've they've, relegated, those beautiful Martin and Lynx that we catch to trim, that's only where where, where they've yeah, ended up. I think you have to understand the industry. One of the reasons why we're relegated to the sidelines like that because it's so difficult sometimes to move wild products around the world because of CITES. CITES is, is, a, is a, supposed to be a, a treaty that allows yeah. trade in animals that are very abundant. Right. So there's nothing more abundant than beaver and raccoon. Exactly. Or lynx. Like there's, and for example, in otter, there's 13 different species of otter in the world. There's only one that there's legal trade in. And it's a North American river otter because of the North American model of conservation that we practice in North America. Right. You know, we, we control, we license people, we control the harvest. There's all kinds of the safeguards. But if you're a, a Chinese border inspector, customs inspector guy, you can't tell the difference between a giant Amazon otter or a sea otter or whatever. Right. You know, yeah. it's very difficult to do. because So what CITES does is it stifles the trade. Okay. So it's about money. It's always about money, right? So if the I'm going to if, <laughs> if I'm going to invest a hundred dollars in an otter, and it might get hung up in customs, or it might take me a year before I can turn that thing over, or I can buy a ranch mink, have it dressed and ready to sew in twelve weeks, where are you going to invest your money? Okay. So the, that's one of the biggest challenges we have all the time is more regulation for wild fur is not good. No. Not you know, at all. It, it it's it stifles, the, and you you want products to be able to freely move, and you and, and that's that's a, again a role that we're always trying to fight or work with with the, with the fur institute is is to keep an eye on this and to to put up our hand when we start seeing things getting a little bit too much uh, red tape. Like we have an issue with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife where they, for example, if somebody makes a beaver coat in Montreal and they trim it with bobcat. So it's a Christmas present, so they want to rush it out the door and it's going to go to New York City for somebody's Christmas present. Because it has Bobcat on the trim now, Bobcat is CITES, they want a separate inspection and a separate fee on top of that. So these are things that stifle the trade. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, in, in the big picture, you don't really notice that. And you say, well, why, why is the price of lynx no good? Well, because it's a CITES-listed species, it becomes difficult to move it around. That's what it is? Yeah, that's one of the and big problems. Is that it, why the coyote is so popular? Well, coyotes, coyotes aren't listed on CITES, right? Ah. So it moves. You can move the product, right? I've always wondered why, the, why, why all of a sudden the coyote. Why did they pick the coyote? But that's why? 
Well, I think Kate Upton had a lot to do with that on the on the front cover of Sports Illustrated when she she modeled that one for the bikini, uh, the Sports Illustrated. You're you're talking to a, a troglodyte when it comes to Sports Illustrated. Well, Sports Illustrated <laughs> does their does their uh, their swimsuit issue every year. Yes. And Kate Upton was on the front cover wearing a Canada Goose jacket with the coyote trim. Okay. And after that, Canada Goose could do nothing wrong. Okay. It just took right off. And, I mean, they're expanding all over the place. They're, they're putting another five flag stores in this year. They're huge. They're huge. huge. I, I, I mean, when you take and a look, everybody tells me that there's no appetite in the North American market for fur. And I, I just point to Canada Goose and they say, now what? You know? Now, but, but see, that's fashion. Right. Right? And fashion trumps everything. When, when something's fashionable... Like I drive by a lot of universities in my job. I drive, I drive down around London. I drive around Hamilton, and you see these young people wearing Canada Goose jackets going to university. You know they can't afford those jackets, yeah, but mom, mom and dad are buying it for them. But they're fashionable, and if I if if he, one person has one, the next person one, and it just continues to snowball like that. So it's great, and it and the story with Canada Goose. And by the way, they're not the only ones using. Coyote trim, like Ribolati comes to the, to NAF all the time and buys the top lot of coyotes. That's Italian. The, That's an Italian yeah, ma yeah. manufacturer. Yeah. There's Montclair. There's a number of different companies that are using uh, yes. coyotes, and everybody is trying to get in on the fad now. So you have knockoffs, and they'll buy the poorer quality. That's why the price of coyote is so so buoyant right now. Right, it's right. it's great, you know. But, but def definitely part of it is because it's so easy to, to move around the world. Yeah, well, absolutely, because you don't need a CITES document to move it. That's a huge. I, I, I wondered about that. I wondered. I mean, Lynx is so beautiful. Yeah. There's never. If you have fur laying on uh, on a countertop, different different fur, and that the ladies go to the oh, Lynx every time. Every time, yeah. You know, and and then looking at and why are they putting coyote on there? Yeah. <laughs> so now I know. Yeah. And that, that that was worth the price of admission tonight. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, the people don't, and trappers don't really appreciate that because, you know, they just basically want their fur sold and gone, right? Right. But it's that buyer at the other end. If he if he gets stuff, held, stuff his goods held up in customs and it takes him a month or two months or six months to get it straightened out, that's, the the clock's ticking on his money. Wow. So that's one of the reasons why. I mean, you, you if you, uh, if you go to a, an auction and you see ranch fur that comes in, I mean, the, the males are, the, the, they got six X size males now, which are the size of otter almost, like yes. small otter. Yeah. yeah. And they come in 25 different colors. Yeah. And if you want a short nap, you get a short nap. You want a long nap, you can get a long nap. You want right. a mid nap, they, they, yeah. they got the quality. I mean, but interesting enough, I mean, the, probably the biggest problem we have right now with the fur trade is Putin and the price of oil. Really? You know, you, the, the world's production was we, everything was going great when all the markets were open but as soon as we lost the russian market that's when the, the whole house started to collapse okay so you have a, an overproduction of, of fur it doesn't have the outlets that you like everybody buys wild fur but they were buying it for the russian market okay so the greeks buy wild fur the turks buy wild fur china buys wild fur but they were basically manufacturing in the garments and then right into the russian market so when, oh. when Putin invaded the Crimea, the Western world put all kinds of sanctions on him, and most of the sanctions was, was, was the control of money. So they lost the free flow of money moving, moving through to make money on money, and then the price of oil, because Russia is probably, if not the largest export of oil, at least the second largest export of oil. Like, they move a lot of oil, so right, 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 they have right, a petrodollar right. like Canada does, you know. It's, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's where we're at. So I keep, you know, I always... I always watch to see what the price of oil is. That's one of the indicators that I use to, to say how fur is going to do. And then the other thing that's really coming crashing down really fast is the, the, the numbers of ranch mink are going to be probably 30 million or next, uh, less next year. So that's, that, you're going to see a recovery in the fur market.
That is a huge number. Thirty yeah. million or less. That's nothing. So but it was. A, it peaked out at eighty-two million. Eighty-two million. Yeah. That's a lot of fur. Yeah. Yeah. It's billions of dollars worth of fur. Wow. Yeah. So when we get regulated to to trim, sometimes it's to make that black mink coat look a little more fancier. So they'll yeah. put some sable on it, or they'll put some cat on it, or right. you know, some sort of different type of fur. But uh, when you you, you know when you take uh, I used to I used to grade uh, wild mink and when you when you grade a wild mink and it's got ticks and scars you know it's got just it doesn't get fed every day like a, a ranch mink yeah, does it's hard yeah. to compete against that you know yeah. I think the way that we need to do it is to market it as a truly unique uh, fur yeah you know and yep. get away from the mass production sort of stuff like there's only going to be ten thousand coats made like that out of that wild stuff where there'll be a hundred or two hundred thousand ranch mink coats made. I agree. That's I agree. the way to market it. It's I don't think you compete head to head with them, but I think there's there's lots of room for, for wild fur when all the markets are firing on all cylinders. And it's funny because what you're talking about is 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 it becoming a special item, which is what fur is. But all of a sudden, we because we had all, all the ranches going on, it became a, a much more mundane, much more production line item. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't say that though, Rich. I would say like, one, like without the Russian market. See, the Russian there's cities in the Russia that are above the Arctic Circle, right? Right. And they they love to wear hats, and they'll take the fall beaver, which are a flatter beaver, but they're lighter. Yeah. And they'll 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 sell them all the smaller sizes all day long, for that hat market. But when they don't have the money to buy it, or the sanctions don't l allow that product to get into the country, everything comes crashing down. So raccoon, that's the biggest raccoon market is Russia. It's the biggest beaver market when all, all cylinders fire, firing. The other thing that they really like is Fisher, but they they uh, and you can see the price of Fisher has been kind of yeah you know hit and miss, really hit and miss. It's no market basically for the big males and and a very you know weak market for the females. Yeah, yeah, I know. I I went from a peak of over three hundred dollars for my for my females to I think I I was top lot in the last auction it was what up 110 uh, 110 or 112 or something yeah, like that something like 112 yeah yeah 112 us yeah yeah, yeah. I, had, I had i had three in there anyway <laughs> oh that's nice yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so talking about hats though you wear another hat as well with the wild fur shippers council i believe well, i wear a few different hats yeah <laughs> so i'm a director with the wild fur shippers council and uh what that represents is a 25 percent ownership by the trappers of, of north american fur auctions so we we do a couple of different products. If if you would notice, we put all of our DVDs, our fur handling DVDs, on YouTube now. Yes. And in French and English. Okay. So anybody that wants to know anything about, especially our beaver one, our beaver uh, video was our it was an epic video. <laughs> it's probably three and a half hours long, but luckily it's broken down into six sections. So you can go on the YouTube now, and you can you can go to either French or English, and you can watch you know whatever you want. And there's a great uh, if you've seen the latest uh, IT magazine, International Trapper magazine for NAFA, you'll see where they talk about uh, Hatter beavers. Correct. Yeah. Well, there's a really good segment in there, in the in the videos, it explains the hatting process right to a T. I mean, that's a pretty interesting trade there. Like, beaver is the best product in the world to make felt hats. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Now, when you're talking about I mean, everybody thinks that hats could be just like a beaver fur hat. or yeah. These or are Stetson Cowboy You're hats. talking about felting, yeah. Felting hats, yeah. yeah. I actually did a bunch of research for that to, to, to write an article on it. It was fascinating. That's very interesting, yeah. yeah. Well, Matt is a hatter, right? And they used to use the mercury to, to in the process and drove yeah. all the hatters mad. 
Well, and, and how how it actually started? Yeah, when I did uh, did research on on, the, uh, on felting and that, it, it's actually started in like 1600, 1605 or something like that. The Swedes invaded Germany, and uh, the particular hats they had had these really wide brims on it. And it was only beaver that 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 could be like any fur can be felted. Yeah, even wool can be felted. Yeah, yeah. and but the beaver was the only thing that would carry off these great big wide. Yeah. Brims, yeah. and that's literally the the making of Canada and, and North America. Was, yeah, if you was, if you look under, and it's the felt, uh, it's the under fur in the beaver. It's not the guard yes. hairs. Yeah, and they're barbed. Yep, and that's why they they really love it for that. And they'll and they'll 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 do some knockoffs. They'll use uh, rabbit fur sometimes, or they'll try to throw some wool in it yep. to make a lesser quality. But they're really hundred percent, hundred proof, best quality hats are made from one hundred percent beaver fur. And it's actually the better, uh, like. They like the winter because you have a, a yeah. heavier under fur, right? Yeah, the, the summer beaver are no good for really for the hatter market. They'll they'll buy them because there's no under fur really to speak of. Right. So they need that when they when they actually do it, they cut it in one inch strips and then they shave it all off and then they put it through blowers and they separate the <laughs> under fur from the guard hair. And the <laughs> whole process is on the on the video. It's really cool to see. That is that is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So with uh, well, first shippers council. You, uh, you guys are also in in the in promoting uh, the wild fur and wild fur sales that, yeah. that that sort of stuff. You work with with NAFA. NAFA does a yeah. lot of um, uh, a lot of fashion work in that. Uh, they have schools. Yeah, they 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 have the uh, yeah the the I forget the name of the school right now, but yeah the uh, Studio they, NAFA. Sorry. Right, and yeah. and that's where they they bring in people from from Asia or from Korea? Or well, what they've done in the last few years is they've run a, a contest for designs and they take the winners from a couple of the different designs and then they bring them into it and teach them how to sew fur. So you're trying to plant that seed with, with new people that are coming into the business, designers, to, to not only work with fur but to understand fur and know, know how to sew with it and the different processes because there's so many different little tricks that they can do with it. So it's kind of a prize to the people that win some of the design contests. They have them... They have them at the Milan Fair, and they also have, I think, two in China that they do. That's amazing. Yeah, That's and amazing. then they've taken this roadshow. They've actually taken Studio NAFA on the road. I think the, last year they did one in in, in uh, South Korea. They took the the actual equipment over, and they actually put on a Studio NAFA in Korea. And it's received well. Yeah, very well, very well. I mean, anytime you can get that wild fur product in the hands of people, designers, you plant seeds, right? Yes. And you know, wise men plant trees that they'll never see the shade under. Yeah. Well, it's the same idea. You got to be out there showing these things off so that eventually the next fashion craze could be uh, some sort of use with beaver and away it goes. And then we're off. We're good again. You know, it's, it's well, the way it goes. Wouldn't that be wonderful for, oh. for beaver to be back in, we need in three. Vogue? We need three species in the wild fur business for us to rock and roll. And that's beaver, raccoon, and muskrat. Okay. When those, because we can produce them in big numbers. Yes. And it gets a lot of people involved. Right. So those are the three that, you know, really, if we, if we, would spend all of our marketing money. Those would be the three species that I would always recommend to, to push on. It should be nice to see because, especially for kids, yeah. muskrats are where kids all start. Yeah, absolutely. I love that one. Yeah, absolutely. There's something about being out in the spring when you do spring muskrats. Yeah. You know, it's been a long winter and then things are melting and they, it's that smell in the air. You yeah. Know, it's, it always gets me uh, worked up when I get out and do that. I just, I think it's just fantastic. The geese are coming back. The ducks are yeah. coming back. You know, it's been a long winter and. And that's one of the things that we enjoy here that we don't realize. But when you go to live in the tropics, they never have that spring smell because yeah. they never get the reset that we get. Yeah, and yeah. that is so so awesome. Well, we're getting a reset this year because <laughs> we're getting lots of flooding here in Ontario. 
<laughs> I could talk and talk and talk with you for a long time here yet to go. We'll have to do this again. It has been a pleasure. Great, Richard. Before before we my fa- it, my favorite episode of Trapping Inc is the one you do with uh, I think is it Morley with the with the wolf trapping. Yes, I love that one. I've watched it a couple times. Yeah, he's an awesome yeah. fella. Yeah. He's he's ran out of wolves on his line, oh, so there I, you go. I I gotta I gotta convince him to to come to my line and get her something. Uh, you are doing a uh, video project, YouTube project on your trap line yourself, right? Yeah, I just and and I want I I want to do not just tra- trapping. If you like, it's, it's called Gibbs Adventures. And I'm just trying to showcase trapping, of course, because that's that's what I do the mostly. But I did a little uh, segment on uh, on doing maple syrup. I have yes. a bandsaw sawmill. I'll do some. I'll yeah. I'll show the guys how we catch leeches in the summertime for for fishing. And I keep bees. So I want to show all kinds of different facets of the rural lifestyle. Exactly. That's because, awesome. Because there's so many people that don't understand where where products come from no, anymore. You not know, at and all. it's and no. it's it's our culture. And it's and it's sad to be swept aside by somebody in the city that thinks, you know, how can somebody in a city where there's no habitat left for animals tell somebody that lives in the forest year round and makes a living from it what to do and not to do? So that's the reason I'm I'm starting my YouTube thing. And especially when we have such an incredible venue to put it on YouTube is it's incredible. Reaches so many people. <laughs> I'm learning more about it every day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a real rookie to it, so I don't really know what I'm doing. So I'm checking out your camera set up here. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, and and, uh, thank you folks for watching. We hope you've enjoyed it, and uh, maybe we'll see you guys down the line.